Hello and welcome to the Historical Paranormal Podcast. I've been away for quite some time, three weeks, and I have missed every bit of it. I absolutely love doing this show, so when I can get a chance to get away um, and record an episode, I do. Although now that the holidays are over, it's a little bit easier to, or it will be a little easier to get away on my days off. So, today's story is a really, really salacious one. Not really, really salacious. It's slightly salacious. And that's been really fun to say. I've liked that word salacious lately. But anyway, it's slightly salacious considering what we would consider that to be nowadays. Um, It is the story of the French murderess, Marie Catherine Taperet. And I want y'all to please appreciate that I had to read in French for quite a lot of this. And it's not only that I forgot that Google Translate exists at first, it's also that a lot of the, or one of the main resources is a PDF document, but one that you cannot copy and paste. So um, I did actually have to read that one. It sucked. I'll be honest with you. It really did. Um, I, while I am versed somewhat in French, of passable French, um, it's not, I mean, this is on a whole other level. It was written in the 1700s. So it was never going to be a great time for me, but I digress. The story is of Marie Catherine Taperet. She was born in 1728 to extremely poor, described as indigent parents. So I'm just going to say she was born in squalor, right? Her parents died at a really young age and she was taken in by her grandmother who did have a little bit more money to her and she afforded Marie a pretty decent education for what her her stance was in the world at that point. Now, she took or Marie took everything she could from that. I mean, she really made the most of her education and the opportunities that it afforded her in that she made friends wherever she went and that includes friends of a higher social class than her. Now, before you go and say like, oh my gosh, higher social class, what are we? What are we coming to? Dude, this was the early 1700s. There was most definitely a caste system. And later on in the century, we see the revolt of that, but we just ain't there yet. So it's going to stay. I'm going to still talk about the caste system because it does play a little bit of a role in this story. So she is not described as a beautiful woman at all. She is described as just not pretty, but in the records, they do say that she was incredibly fun and witty and vivacious and somebody you just wanted to be around. I mean, she commanded a presence. So as such, she did attract the attentions of many suitors who paid her court. And it seemed as though she was most attracted to a young architect named Louis-Alexander Lescombat. And so it was Les Combat that she married pretty quickly. Um, and they both moved in with her grandmother until they could save money to have their own home. And unfortunately, this is not an arrangement that Marie was super excited about. I mean, as that I don't really blame her for. And in a lot of the sources, it says that she kind of revolted against her grandmother and just kind of painted her in a negative light. And while I think that's definitely something we're going to do later, um, it's not something I would do now. I mean, if you're a married couple, the last thing you want to do as newlyweds 
is hang out at your grandma's house and live there with her, especially if she just happens to be a little bit strict. I don't know if she was or not, but it seems as though perhaps she was. Whatever the case may have been, they did end up moving to a very spacious house on the Rue Grancière. Before we go further, I wanted to give a little history on the Rue Grancière. At that time, it was probably named the Rue Saint-Sulpice or Ruelle Saint-Sulpice, and it was so named since 1540. And it's gone through a few name changes. So as the catacombs started being filled and the catacombs began being filled because or were created because the Paris cemeteries were just overflowing and the city needed room to grow. So they evacuated the cemeteries and put them into the catacombs, which now house about 6 million remains or 6 million people. So side note, it was then called, this is right before the revolution in 1774, it was then called the Rue Fossoyer. And after that, it became known as the Rue Grancier, Grancier. And then after that, it became known as the Rue Grancière. So that was so named because of a hotel that was built there. So the couple set up their home. And as I said, it was a fairly large one for just the two of them. So they started having parties. And eventually, her husband, Mr. Les Combat, wanted to teach a few students. And he took in several male students. And... Mrs. Les Combat or Marie really, really loved all of this. Now, before we get too much into that, they had started to move into some affluent circles. And unbeknownst to her husband, because it was Marie who generally went to the parties, um, she was very well liked at first. And then after a while, she just became a little bit too much of a partier. And the French used the term libertinage, that she had too many libertinages, which I'm guessing is, um, and what they hint at is like moral corruption. So I'm guessing she slept with a few people. Um, so she was very quickly kicked out and her husband still did not notice this. So this may have been the reason that she decided to, or they decided to have their own, um, salon or just meeting place and, and somewhat school because she really wasn't invited back to a lot of these places. So when they started having male pupils over, she of course really loved this. She had a great time flirting with all of them. And this is not just me saying this, this is definitely recorded <laughs> in all of the, uh, the different registers that I, I checked and, um, different accounts of the time. But there was one that she really connected with, and that was 23-year-old Henri Mangeau. They connected very quickly and became lovers also very quickly. And this went on for quite some time before her husband started to realize it. And when he did, of course, he kicked Mangeau out. But he also, and this is, there's no detail that is taken in any of the accounts that I've read, but everything just says he reproved her severely. And it was so bad, whatever he did, that she decided that he would pay. And him kicking Manjo out actually was what the catalyst is that he would pay. So him reproving her or punishing her, however that may have looked, you know, wasn't that bad. But him kicking Manjo out of the school, which to me is an obvious thing, that was the worst thing. So she vowed revenge. And revenge she certainly got. 
But before that, she spent a lot of time trying to convince her husband that Henri was just a friend and that he misunderstood the whole situation. And she did this so often and then convinced Henri that he needed to talk to her husband and smooth it all out. They did actually smooth it all out. So she worked really hard to get them back together. And for a little while, they become lovers again. But at this point, while her husband was still unaware and still believed her, at this point, she felt as though he was a tyrant and she no longer wanted to live under his name, under his roof. And she convinced Monjot or Henri to assassinate her husband. And I actually have a letter that she wrote uh, to Monjot to do this. So here it goes. Remember your promise, your oath. And this is what she wrote to Monjot to deliver me from my tyrant. To you, I transfer the work of revenge. Heavens, how I pant for the moment of liberty. Choose your time with judgment and consider that the lives of us both are at stake. But mark, such is my fury that if you have not the courage to perform the deed, I will myself find other means of procuring peace. Yes, I am furious. Hell is in my heart and to nothing is sacred. If you did not but know the heart of an exasperated woman, you would speedily execute my commission. With what transport shall I hear of the death of my husband? With what raptures shall I receive his murderer? How much more amiable than ever you will appear in my eyes. But, alas, you are timid, cowardly. You tremble for your life. You never loved me. Oh, why was it my fate to become acquainted with you? I was living in innocence till you seduced me. Okay, sure. Um, had I yielded to any other, I had long ago been a widow. And here she begins another letter. I'm guessing that we don't have the original copy of his response, but this is her response to Monjot after that first letter. You think to deter me by the representation of a painful and ignominious death by the hand of the executioner. You paint the horrors of the last moments of a murderer. You desire me to suppose myself at the place of execution and to imagine that I see your blood flowing for my sake. You threaten me with the like fate. You confess that you should not endure the torture, but should accuse me as your accomplice. Never mind. All this you must risk. Concern yourself not about my life. It is hateful to me as long as my husband breathes. I cheerfully sacrifice it, so my revenge be but gratified. Is this enough for you? Now go, mean-spirited wretch. Go immediately and accuse. If, however, you fulfill my wishes, if you present yourself to me dripping with the blood of my husband, then indeed expect everything from me. Never did woman love so ardently as I then shall, and evermore you shall be the god of my heart. And here Manjo replies. We don't have his first reply, but we do have this one. Well, I will prove that I adore you, and that I am capable of sacrificing my life for your sake. Be the consequences what they may, your husband shall die by my hand. But the magnanimous grant me one condition. Let me challenge him like a man of honor, not dispatch him like an assassin. I hope to vanquish him with ease. I shall thus accomplish your wishes and avoid the foul stigma of assassination. Have patience only a week longer, and I will find a proper time and place. 
may none of the misfortunes I have predicted await you. If we should be discovered, I will endeavor to save your life and not my own. So she ended up writing a second letter to Monjo where she felt as though maybe they were wrong. She wanted to reconcile with her husband and she wanted to leave Monjo. And in the letter, she goes back and forth. They don't have an exact transcript, only a description. She goes back and forth where she seems to blame him for the whole plot, even though it was her idea to begin with. And then tells him that she loves him, but that she has to break things off with him. And there's some speculation as to whether she was honestly conflicted or genuinely conflicted. Um, or whether she was doing this to ignite some kind of fire within Monjot to blame the entire thing on the husband and try and get her back by actually killing her husband. So there's some conjecture there. We don't actually know. But what does happen is this. One December evening in 1754, Henri Monjot invited Louis Lescombat for a walk in the Luxembourg Gardens. Manjo says that he is very excited to walk with him. He has his friends back, so he's talkative and just in general in a great mood. So as the evening goes on, they decide to go eat at a Swiss restaurant and they drink a lot of wine. They have a great time. And in fact, they don't finish their food until 11 o'clock at night. At this point, when the meal's over, they decide to return to their homes and on the way back, in a kind of shadowy area near the Luxembourg Gate on Rue d'Enfer, Henri Mangeau does not just slash at Louis. He ends up running his sword entirely through him. So he starts from the back. He attacks from the back, which is contrary to his letter where he wanted to um, challenge him like a man, so he says. So he ends up just running him through, which is brutal. And so Louis falls to the floor. And I go back and forth between Louise and Louis. So I'm not going to fix it at this point. I've already gone too far. But Louis. So Louis falls. And every account has it listed as that he is just bathed in blood. And he's kind of writhing on the floor or on the ground street. And Henri, thinking, okay, well, this might sound really bad, puts a pistol next to him, just tosses a pistol next to him and dashes off where he runs into a patrol. Now, before we get to that, the street that he kills him on is called Rue d'Enfer, or it could be Rue de l'Enfer. I'm not entirely sure. But anyway, the translation roughly goes to um, the street of hell. And sounds a little scary. It sounds like, oh my gosh, this is exactly the kind of thing that we would think would happen on the street or Hell Street, however that may um, come out. However, the street was not actually named for Hell. It was named uh, for like some kind of mix or portmanteau of a man named Pierre Philippe Denfer Rochereau. So it really had nothing to do with Hell. Although I was a little excited that the French. Um, gothic tendencies did have something to do with that, but no. As Henri runs away from the scene of the murder, he runs into a patrol of policemen, and he says, pretty convincingly at first, a man has just tried to attack me and threaten me with a gun, and I have struck him down. The police immediately go over to 
find Les Combat's body, which he at this time had died, or at this point had died, and they take him into the commissioner to question him further. And pretty quickly into the questioning, Henri Mangeau breaks down and says that this was actually a murder and there was nothing to do with a man trying to attack him, which was probably obvious to the police because the gun very likely had no blood on it or it just, it wasn't, hadn't fallen in a way that would suggest someone was trying to use it to um, threaten anybody. At first, he does not involve Marie at all. And while she was arrested for questioning, she was pretty quickly let go when Manjo says that he did not um, consult her with this. He just killed her husband out of jealousy. So she was arrested. She was questioned, let go. And the only caveat was that she had to make herself available when the police needed any further clarification on what Monjot said or how the events of the night took place. Now, during this time, she goes to visit him. She brings him supplies. She brings him food. And she even takes in meals with him. Not only that, she also goes and stays the night with him. So she's not really doing much to clear her name. She's not really making it seem like she didn't have anything to do with it. But that still doesn't have the Paris police convinced that she had anything um, to do with the actual murder. Until Manjo gets moved to another prison, probably to await his sentencing. And he ends up getting sentenced, no surprise, to death. He then hears that Marie has moved on to another lover, Joao Veracruz. He also hears that she is planning to leave Paris with him. And at this point, Henri Mangeau still does not incriminate his girlfriend. Instead, upon hearing that his sentence was to be death on the wheel, we'll talk about that in a second, he asks the judge to bring in Marie Catherine Taperet, or Marie Catherine Les Combat, either way, and just get some clarification from her. So they stand in front of the judge. She has the nerve to come in beautifully dressed and pretty happy. I mean, she scoffs at what he's been suffering through because, again, she had stopped seeing him and thus stopped bringing him food and supplies. So he was not looking as dashing as he probably used to. So she was laughing at his his issues and what he's been going through. She laughed at his death sentence and what she'll have, what he'll have to go through and pretty much said, that's what he deserves for killing my husband. And this was it. This was the straw that broke the camel's back for Manjot. He told the judge that she absolutely had everything to do with it and made a full confession, completely incriminating Marie Catherine Les Combat. After this, he spent one more night in incarceration and was then executed on the wheel. And let's talk about the wheel. So I had no idea what it was. I had heard about a Catherine wheel, but I I wasn't quite clear. So I looked it up and it starts off with being laid kind of just open. So almost like in an X formation on the wheel. Now the wheel had spokes, so there were some open spaces and they would take an iron bar And after torturing the victim or the um, accused, they would stick him on this wheel, like I said, in that X formation. And they would take an iron bar 
and break each one of his limbs. And if the victim wasn't dead by that point, which of course, very, very unlikely to be dead, they twisted the broken limbs. They twisted the broken limbs around the spokes and just did a little bit more torture that way by moving the wheel around and kind of jostling him. Just, I can't even imagine. This whole thing has just made me cringe. Um, and then they twisted a bar around the neck a little bit and tried to snap the vertebrae. And sometimes they didn't do that. It was really the goal was to either snap the neck or snap the back either way. The executioner then had the choice to garrote the victim or to decapitate him. Um, and that was really kind of a, a an act of mercy or kindness. And they called the that last part of it a coup de grace. And sometimes it wasn't Sometimes it just ended up being the same iron bar used to break the bones used instead for these blows of mercy um, on their neck and on their abdomen, crushing the intestines and the bones and ribs and whatnot inside. So it was still a pretty slow and painful, crappy death, but at least they didn't have to sit there for two days like that, which I mean, it is some sort of act of mercy, I suppose. So Manjo, that happened to him. That's how he died, right? He was then dismembered and then his body parts were put up on spikes on display um, in different parts of Paris. So that closes the book on Henri Manjo. However, Madame Lascombet had been arrested. She had heard of her ex-lover's death, but she was still really denying that she had anything to do with it at this point. In fact, she replied this way when they asked her about Manjot and why he would have accused her. She said, Manjot was an unhappy fellow who long loved me and for whom I even felt some friendship, but his last declaration proves nothing against me for he was no longer master of himself. Now, this kind of doesn't make sense, especially if they were the police or the questioners that were there Um, in the prison when she was spending the night with him. So obviously they did not believe her. And she was told that she would be put on trial as soon as possible. And here she threw a wrench um, into the whole proceeding by saying that she was four or five months pregnant. She was examined by doctors and they found this to be absolutely true. So she was given about I don't know, another five months off so she could have the child. And I don't want to say off. She was in a a better prison than she normally would have been. So they gave her that time to have the child to breastfeed him. And it definitely was Manjo's baby as far as everybody was concerned. And after that, they did put her on trial and found her guilty. No surprise there. Now for her execution, it's said that people were there in the thousands And one of the registers at the time had recorded that people had even rented towers of Notre Dame to watch her die. And rooms were rented out in the Place de Greve, uh, where her scaffold was erected so that they could really see. And by thousands, I mean, there were people standing. There were people, there was a crowd, but there were also carriages that filled the square and a lot of the adjacent streets to watch her die. As you can imagine, this was a very sensational case like I said in the beginning a salacious story and it filled a lot of the penny dreadfuls that were around at that time too so she had made somewhat of a repentance 
right before her death, but it really wasn't anything. I mean, uh, a lot of the accounts just say, eh, she said she was sorry, but nobody really believed her. So she was executed on July 2nd, 1755 at 27 years old. And a few days later, there was a 20 page document that was circulated in Paris about this and gave all the details of the case. And unfortunately, there's no author, so I can't credit anybody on that. But that ends our story of Marie Catherine Tapere, Les Combat. And by the way, she did give birth to a son. I could not find any record of what happened to him at all. The only thing that I was able to find for him was that his name was Jean-Louis de Mongeau. So she was, he was given his father's name. But altogether, a really interesting but sad story. Uh, because there was a child left without his mother or his father. And knowing the French orphanage system at the time, his life probably wasn't awesome. But in any case, that ends our episode for her. And again, if you guys have any uh, recommendations, like this one I found on a Reddit creepypasta. Unfortunately, I it was deleted, so I really couldn't see who wrote it. Um, the username was deleted, but I did see that one little excerpt, which just talked about her name. And then I did all the research after that. So if you have a chance, check out creepypasta on Reddit. Um, it is a lot of the time fake, like the, they're just really good narratives, but they are also really scary sometimes. And sometimes like this one in the case of Marie Catherine Tapere, Les Combat, um, real and supported by documentation from the time. All right. So if you have any recommendations, like I said earlier, reach out to me on Instagram. I am at historical paranormal. I do have a Facebook now. So if you search historical paranormal, you will find it. And you can reach out to me there too, of course. But obviously my preferred method is Instagram. So send me any thoughts, any feelings, any corrections on pronunciations. And of course, recommendations. I hope y'all have a great week and a happy new year. Bye.